As we continue our journey through this letter, we will see some common themes, themes that we have seen already that are developed a little bit more, and some that are simply repeated so that they will take root in our hearts and lives and produce fruit that will last and will bring glory to God. So I invite you now to hear God's word. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. I've titled this message, Whenever Our Heart Condemns Us. It's taken from that phrase in verse 20. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And common condemnation is common to all of us. We have all dealt with condemnation. If we're honest, we all know what it is to feel condemnation. For some of us, it's an infrequent visitor. And for others, it's a constant companion or a remaining resident who lives rent-free in our minds. Perhaps we've all seen a condemned house or building. It has been determined that this particular structure is unsafe and must be demolished. Maybe you've been in an accident where a vehicle was declared a total loss. It is destined for destruction. That's condemnation. It has been condemned. It's received a sentence of destruction. The Greek word translated condemn in this passage is actually a compound word made up of two Greek words, the word to know and the word against or according to. So a very literal translation of this word would be to know against. In other words, you could... um, Talk about it in the sense of, I know what you did last night or last week. That's condemnation. Condemnation is conviction. Sometimes good conviction, sometimes bad conviction. And there are different kinds of messages of condemnation that different ones of us have heard. Some of these are very painful. Some of you have heard messages like, you will never amount to anything. You'll never be any different than you are now, so just give up. There's no hope for you. You can never be forgiven for what you've done. After what you've done, you could never be forgiven. God could never love you. I heard just this past week, One from our fellowship was in a restaurant and heard someone talking to one of their little children, threatening them, I'm going to throw you in the trash can. In a previous generation, there were things spoken like this. If someone kidnaps you, they'll get you under a street light and they'll let you go. How harsh these words of condemnation spoken against us. The Bible speaks about condemnation. 
In Luke 23, 39 through 43, one of the criminals who was, were hanged railed at Jesus saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Condemnation. In Romans 5, 15 through 21, we read about condemnation. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, meaning all who believe and receive the gift offered in Jesus Christ. So apart from Christ, we all stand condemned. But the good news of the gospel is what we read earlier this morning from Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But condemnation comes at us from different directions. We are accused by the enemy, the enemy of our souls. Revelation 12, 10 and 11 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. There is one who accuses the saints day and night. He condemns, seeks to condemn but in that same passage, it says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Sometimes we're falsely accused by others, even people who are close to us, family members. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. We all know something of condemnation. Most likely we've experienced unjust condemnation, things that were falsely labeled, falsely put upon us. And some of these are very painful. In middle school, which is one of the most painful times in life, you don't need to say amen. But it is. It was. My twin brother and I were subjected to false condemnation, accused of immorality because of the genuine brotherly love that we had for each other and the enjoyment we had of spending time together. That was very, very painful. Not long after that, there was the false con condemnation from my orthodontist, of all people, <laughs> who branded me and both of my brothers as his worst patients ever. Although I think he may have said that to all of his patients because you could almost hear the crying in his office when others were waiting in the lobby. And I have no doubt that he would, if he were still alive, be sued for malpractice if he were still alive and practicing in our current climate. But what was the charge that earned us the reputation of the worst patients ever, he falsely accused us of leaning on our hands and causing our teeth to form a crossbite and mess with his skilled work. 
It was a lie. It was a false accusation. But it felt very condemning. Our family has been reading the book Ammon's Adventure, a family story for Easter, which I highly recommend. It recounts the story of a man who was falsely condemned to die for a crime he did not commit. And as we've been reading it, I confess, I've been reading it aloud at the dinner table, and then a couple nights ago, I was so intrigued, I kept reading after everybody else finished dinner, finished the book. My rationale is that if I'm going to have to read this aloud, I want to know when the emotional parts are coming, so I'm going to be prepared so that I don't break down and cry like a baby. But condemnation affects all of us. These are not pleasant things to recall. When we are falsely accused, it is good to know that we're not alone. Jesus knows what it is to be falsely condemned, and God is greater than our heart. So Jesus silences the voice of false condemnation. But if we're honest, we have all experienced just condemnation, rightful condemnation, because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when our condemnation is just, again, our only appeal is to God, who in mercy and grace speaks a word of pardon through Jesus Christ for all who will believe and receive it. So sometimes we're confused condemned by the enemy, sometimes we're falsely condemned by others, sometimes we're condemned by our own heart. Verse 20 says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So what does the Bible mean by our heart? In the Bible, the heart is the seat of the affections, the things that we love. It's similar to, but different from conscience and will. They're all closely related. The heart is somewhat similar, but distinct from the conscience. Our conscience is our sense of right and wrong. And we could say that our conscience is informed by the desires of our heart. And so if our heart is desiring something good, our conscience affirms that. If our heart is desiring something evil, then our conscience, if our conscience is true to Scripture, our conscience will not affirm that. It will convict us. So our conscience, conscience accuses us or excuses us based on the rightness or wrongness of the desires of our heart. But the heart is this seat of the affections. It is the source of our desires. The heart is also similar to the will, which is the decision-making center. But our will chooses things based on what the heart desires most at any given moment. So when your heart is going after one thing in that moment, your will will choose that. The heart is not meant to be followed, but led when our children were young, it seemed like every animated movie that they watched gave the advice that is common in our culture. You know this phrase, follow your heart. But the Bible warns us against doing that because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. 
John Calvin said that our hearts are idle factories, and he did not mean they are factories that are closed down and shuttered so that they are idle and not producing. What he meant was that our hearts are constantly manufacturing idols for us to treasure and worship in place of God. Prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17, verses 9 and 10 said this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So the heart must not be followed, but it must be led by the word and by God's spirit. And as we consider our hearts we recognize that we have not loved the Lord our God with all of our heart or all of our soul or all of our mind or all of our strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Therefore, our hearts at times rightfully convict us. We may say, I I haven't read the Bible and meditated on it enough or I don't pray enough or I don't give enough of my time and talents and treasure. Our hearts can be so fickle at one moment seeking after God as our highest treasure and the next moment turning our back to the Lord and running after the trinkets of this world. Our heart knows in part, but God knows everything. That's what verse 20 says, God knows everything. So whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. One day we will be fully known, or one day we will know fully, even as we have been fully known, but right now we do not know all that well. So the heart has desires. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. A number of years ago, I was driving on Interstate 71 in the city and I happened to be near a car that had a personalized plate and it said PS 374. This was a fancy sports car and I think the message was I'm delighting in God and so God gave me the desire of my heart which was this car. I don't think that's the message of this verse. It's not if you desire anything God is going to give it to you. But rather, if you delight yourself in God, if your highest treasure is Jesus Christ, then your will will be for more of God, and God is always willing and eager to give you more of himself. Psalm 20, verse 4, the psalmist writes, May the Lord grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans, so that our hearts have desires. In Proverbs, there's a warning about what we desire in our heart. Proverbs 6, 23 through 26, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread but a married woman hunts down a precious life. So our hearts desire different things. Some of those things are godly desires. Some of them are ungodly. Our hearts must not be followed, but led by the word and by the spirit. 
In Romans 10.1, Paul gives us a very godly desire. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Jews, my kinsmen, is that they may be saved. So all these desires that our heart entertains are either godly or ungodly. Our heart follows what we treasure. According to the Bible, the, the heart is the center of our affections, our desires, and the things that we treasure and love. Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants us to have our hearts informed by his word, and we need God to test our hearts. In Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. In Psalm 26, 1 and 2, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. So we all need heart surgery. We need a new heart, and that's what God offers us in the new covenant. We all need heart surgery. One of our members, Dick Gale, who's one of our elders, has a heart procedure upcoming, but we all need a heart procedure. We need God to renew our heart. And in the context of a heart that condemns us, God offers bookends of assurance. At the beginning of this passage, verse 19, at the end of this passage in 24, there are these great bookends. Verse 19, by this we shall know, there's assurance there. Verse 24, by this we know, there's assurance there. So God offers these bookends of assurance. Jesus offers personal, experiential, and certain knowledge of God. Now, philosophers for years have wondered if we can know anything with certainty. And you may know about the philosopher who wasn't sure that he could know anything, but he realized he was thinking, and so there must be someone doing the thinking, and he said, I think, therefore I am. That was what he was certain of. But God offers us certain knowledge, experiential knowledge, personal knowledge of himself through Jesus Christ. This, these words of assurance are spoken multiple times in 1 John, and really only here. There are seven times in 1 John. In 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. 1 John three sixteen. by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. And I think it's looking back to the previous verse, which says, if we love in deed and in truth. Verse 24, by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 4, 6, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Whoever knows God listens to us. 1 John 4, 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And 1 John 5, 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. 
So God offers this assurance, these bookends of assurance that you can know God, or more importantly, be known by God, as Paul says in Galatians 4.9. God offers these bookends of assurance. And so we can reassure, we can convince, we can persuade our hearts before God Whenever our heart condemns us, we can have confidence that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Think with me for a moment about the knowledge of God, God's infinite knowledge. The knowledge of God makes the largest library in the world look like a matchbox. I was talking with Ed and Rosemary Dunn recently, and they, they told me that they have a family tradition of when one of their grandchildren turns 10, they offer to take that grandchild on a special trip. What a wonderful idea for grandparents to invest in their next generation. And so when their grandson recently turned 10, he said that he would like to go to Washington, D.C. Now, I know that Rosemary has a planned out an itinerary, but I don't know if it includes the Library of Congress. If it does, I'd like to go. (laughs) The Library of Congress is the largest library in the world in both shelf space and number of books. It is housed in three separate buildings in our nation's capital. Its various collections include more than 150 million items on over 800 miles of bookshelves. These items include over 34 million books, over 3 million recordings, over 13 million photographs, over 5 million maps, over 6 million pieces of sheet music, and over 66 million manuscripts. Here's some trivia for you. The smallest book in the Library of Congress is Old King Cole, measuring 1 25th of an inch by 1 25th of an inch. It's about the size of a period at the end of a sentence. Its pages can only be turned using a needle. I don't know how you can see the words on the page, but... (laughs) The largest book in the Library of Congress is a 5-foot by 7-foot picture book featuring thousands of color images of the country of Bhutan. The library has one of only three perfect copies of the Gutenberg Bible, which is one of the most valuable books in the world. That's a lot of knowledge. But it pales in comparison to the knowledge of our God. Our God knows everything. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. And so sometimes our hearts condemn us justly. But our condemnation is covered by the cross of Christ, our advocate. Back in 1 John 2, 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. He has taken on the wrath of God, diverted the wrath of God from us onto himself. So... It is only the voice of God that can pardon us when we're condemned justly. It's only the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel that can quiet our heart. Jesus was condemned so that we might not be condemned. Hebrews 12, 24 speaks about Jesus and what he has done and and it says that we've been brought to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Lee talked to us about Cain and Abel recently in the Bible in 1 John 3, 
3 says, don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. The blood of Abel, Cain's brother, speaks of the guilt of Cain, but the blood of Jesus speaks that our guilt can be forgiven and covered. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. When we have that word spoken over us, we have confidence before God. And then our heart does not condemn us. And when we are walking in that confidence before God, when we're walking in the light as he is in the light, then we have confidence to ask whatever we wish and we will receive what we ask of God. Now some people view God as the cosmic vending machine. You put your money in, and you expect to get something out. And we have this tit-for-tat kind of relationship with God, and we think, well, God, I'm obeying your commandments. You're supposed to do this for me. But that makes God as a means to an end, and that is to make an idol out of God. That is spiritual adultery. What this text is calling us to when it talks about prayer and says that we have confidence to ask whatever we ask from God because we keep his commandments. It says because we're walking in the light, because we're so in tune with the spirit of God that we know what God's will is and we ask accordingly. We're not asking for all these selfish things. Janis Joplin wrote a song a number of years ago, 1971, Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Sometimes we get into this mindset that God, I've done this for you. You must do this for me. But John is telling us that if we're walking in the light, if we're walking close with God, that we will know his will, that we'll be so delighted in his will that we will ask according to his will and we will receive what we ask from God. Sometimes our hearts condemn us justly. Other times our hearts condemn us unjustly and then we can appeal to the motives of our heart. But if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. But it's not a tit-for-tat, transactional kind of relationship with God. We do not say to God, you must do this for me because I did this for you. Rather, the text is teaching that when we are walking by the Spirit, we're so in tune with the will of God that we ask in accordance with God's will, and therefore, we receive what we ask. The crowds that followed Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000 asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, the work singular of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So we keep God's commandments, and his commandment is to believe in the one he has sent. And love one another as he commanded. Just as Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So walking in the light, we ask according to his will and we receive and keeping his commandments demonstrates that we're abiding in him. Verse 24, by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit given to us. So God has given us his spirit 
at conversion, when we're born again, his spirit has caused us to be regenerated or born again. And that spirit, his Holy Spirit, enables us to recognize and embrace Jesus as the Messiah, to obey God, and to love others. God intends for us to abide in him and he in us. How will you stand before a holy God who knows all things and also is the judge of all the earth? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a bit of a prankster, and it's said that he once sent a telegram to 12 of his friends saying, all is discovered, flee at once. Within 24 hours, all 12 had fled the country. If we're honest, no matter how much good we have done, we all have things in our lives that we do not want to have discovered or uncovered or found out. Lies we've told, hurtful things that we've said about others, times when we've sought revenge or cheated to gain personal advantage, and we fear being exposed before others. Yet nothing is hidden before God. God knows everything, this text tells us. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7, God sees and knows all. God is holy and cannot abide in the presence of sin, and yet... We're still alive. We're alive today at this moment. Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 17, he said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the greatest purpose that any of our hearts can experience, to have Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. And C.S. Lewis pictured what this might look like in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house, and at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that these things, these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little college, cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. God wants to dwell in our hearts through faith. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit he has given to us. And that Holy Spirit of God enables us to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, the God-man, come in the flesh. That Holy Spirit enables us to obey God, to walk in the obedience of faith. That Holy Spirit enables us to love others. And as we've seen throughout this book, this letter of 1 John, there's a threefold evidence of belonging to God and being in Christ. At the beginning, we talked about a spiral staircase, and you go round and round, and you keep seeing things as you go around. You keep seeing some of the things, same things over and over again. And those three things in this letter are believing that God has come in the flesh in Jesus Christ, 
that a right response to God in Christ is the worship shown in the obedience of faith and the belonging to God is demonstrated by our love for our brothers and sisters. And you might think, oh, I've heard that over and over. I don't need to hear it again. But repetition is good for learning. That's a lesson we learn in preschool, right? Repetition. You go over the days of the week, the months of the year, seasons of the year. And in chapel each week with the children, I go over something every week with them. And I say, what is this book? And they all say, the Bible. I say, the Bible is God's word. And I say, can we trust it? And they say, yes. I said, you're absolutely right. We can trust it. It tells us the truth about God and us. And if they don't get anything else out of chapel, I trust that they will carry that with them. We need repetition to learn the things that God wants us to learn. And so he tells us over and over in this letter, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the God-man, the Messiah, come in the flesh. Walk in the obedience of faith, love for God, obey his commandments, and love your brothers and sisters in the body. As we close, I want to close with the words of a hymn that are actually a prayer. Breathe on me, breath of God. Edwin Hatch wrote this hymn in 1886, and it says this. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou dost love, and do what thou wouldst do. Breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure. Until with thee I will, one will, to do and to endure. Breathe on me, breath of God, till I am wholly thine, until this earthly part of me glows with thy fire divine. Breathe on me, breath of God, so shall I never die, but live with thee the perfect life of thine eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we all know condemnation. We've heard it from the enemy. We've heard it from others. We've heard it from our own heart. But we thank you that whenever our heart condemns us, that you are greater than our hearts and you know everything. Oh God, cause us to exult in your infinite knowledge that the one who knows us best loves us most. Thank you, Lord, that you know us that in Jesus Christ you have made us your own and that you love us perfectly and that even though we only know that love in part now, that one day we will know it fully. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant assurance to your people this day, assurance not based on our own works, but based upon Jesus Christ and faith in him and that is evidenced by his gracious work in us that enables us to embrace him as the Messiah and enables us to walk in the obedience of faith and enables us to love one another. May that be true in each of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.